Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Sean's Wildlife. We are very lucky tonight to be joined by a long-term Twitter friend of mine um, who I've spoken to for many, many years, mainly I think on the theme of frogs and ponds. He's a fellow frog and pond nerd, (laughs) but I don't think he'll mind me saying that. He's also an author, zoologist, um, broadcaster and science communicator. Um, Most of you may be familiar with him. His name is Jules Howard and uh, thanks for joining me tonight, Jules. Thanks ever so much, Sean. Lovely to speak to you in the real world. This is great. I know, yeah. I was, it's been uh, it's been quite a long time talking about um, frog porn and uh, pond design on Twitter. <laughs> how are your frogs doing? <laughs> I know we're going in there very soon, but you know, like, how are your frogs and toads? Because you, you get toads as well in yours, is that right? Um, I do. Well, I've actually moved from that house now, so I was renting um, for six years. And the garden had a very old concrete pond in with toads and smooth newts in. Only ever one frog showed up, but um, I had to give it up. I, I bought a little flat and I got an allotment and put a wildlife pond in there. And I've got some newts. Newts showed up in year one and we'll see what shows up this spring. But I had to say goodbye to the toads, sadly. Were you sad saying, because like for me, like a pond is like, it's like a child. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You invest so much and energy into it. Was it weird thinking someone else has got that pond now? It was. It was a bit of a wrench, I, I have to say. Um, you know, I was kind of like giving them directions and instructions on how to look after it when I left. And, uh, you know, there's a few texts saying, have the toads shown up last spring and all that. So, yeah, a bit of a wrench. I know what you mean. It's like your your baby that you've created in some ways. But yeah. there, there'll be more puns in my life in future. <laughs> yeah, nice. Good. Are you still on just the one at your front door? Just the front door. Wow, good knowledge. Yes, it is by the front door. I've still got last year's, I did this project last year of um, uh, like a recycled sink pond, um, like a little porcelain sink and just seeing um, and kind of charting the animals that were that were moving in. Um, And that that pond, that really small pond remains. But then the bigger pond, which is not massive at all it's got it's quite a small little courtyard patio area so the yeah. pond that features a lot on twitter probably too much on twitter it's only about uh i don't know two one and a, well perhaps two by one and a half so it's like uh you know on the smaller end of wildlife yeah. ponds, but it is great you know but because it's next to the door it means anytime you're like you know going in or out and unlocking the door you're like whoa my gosh i just saw a frog or a new you know great crested newt once was in there, it's like a fabled encounter I had in really unbelievable. Um, yeah, never had a toad in there though. That's why I'm sort of a bit forlorn and a bit sort of like, ah, you know, you having local encounters with toads that is totally awesome. But yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I, ours is a bit bereft of life at the moment in the Midlands. We're kind of East Midlands and it's like yeah. spring sort of progresses. You know, as you know, obviously the southwest and then across and then it kind of goes up that that west coast, doesn't it, of, of Britain. And then and in and then it's sort of at the right at the end, it goes into Norfolk and right into the East Midlands. So we tend to get ours. We, I haven't seen a single frog in the whole of this year, which is really weird because obviously it's really full of everyone having these great encounters. And then, uh, yeah, yeah uh, we've still got it's normally International Women's Day. 
when the frogs in in my uh, pond spawn. <laughs> so okay. We've still got a few weeks yet. Yeah, but the males show up first, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we normally get. Yeah. To be honest, it's because it doesn't get loads of sunlight this time of the year. There's a house right next door that blocks the sunlight out, and that means that. Um, without the sunlight, obviously, there's less algal growth, and it means that passing frogs don't really smell the pond. So it's not a high caliber pond for frogs. So it's normally right. you get like one or two males waiting for you know two weeks or so, and then I've, to be honest, in what we've lived here ten years, I've only ever seen one female in the pond because mostly the female just comes in, jacks up with these dudes. And then leaves the yeah. spawn, and then the next day we find the spawn. So yeah, it's 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 kind of a it's. I think the world needs more ponds like that because I think looking at a house like this, you wouldn't immediately think that ha- that garden or that patio needs a pond. So it's kind of been a. Uh, I don't know. We could. Oh, it's, I'm just looking out the window. It's snowing. That's so exciting. Um, yeah. It's, uh, sorry, you're gonna have to cut these bits out. But, no, yeah, you're fine. It's, uh, it's lovely, actually. Yeah, it's been it's been honestly a source of great sort of joy and dare I say it sort of spiritual uh, clarity, I suppose, and connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how you get in the front door. I don't know if I could, if I had a pond at my front door. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely with you on the um, being a pond pusher on everyone I talk to. What can I do for wildlife in my garden? Put in a pond, put in a bucket, put in a basin. And yeah, I've been following your, um, your thing last year of, of what will show up in that little um, container pond you made. And uh, you got some fascinating things show up, didn't you? Yeah, it was, it was, I used to, you, you know this, Sean, I think, but like uh, y- years ago, I used to work on a, before like the proper internet, um, if someone had problems with frogs in their gardens, they would call a frog helpline. <laughs> so there was right. a, <laughs> yeah. a charity frog life used to run this frog helpline. It's like my first job in wildlife conservation was just, a, it was basically like a receptionist, but also, um, you know, if the phone rang and people had questions about frogs, there I was. And actually, yeah. um, you realise that, uh, I don't know, you realise that there are, there's a lot of, I want to, I was going to say misinformation about amphibians and stuff like that, but actually there's a lot of people who want to make a difference and, and back then wanted to make a difference to their back garden to, um, to encourage more wildlife. And I used to say to those people, okay, look, you know, get a pond and you'll be rewarded with hundreds of different animal species. You know, you'll make a positive impact on absolutely loads of wildlife. And actually being totally honest, I didn't really have the evidence to back that statement up. And it's a statement that loads mm. of say all the time, dig a pond, as you say, wildlife will come. But I, I, it was a really nice opportunity to sort of see for myself, you know, the animals that colonize. So yeah, the animals were fantastic. Uh, things like started off with um, tiny little fly larvae, uh, bloodworms. They sound awful, but they're pollinators, and of course they're great. Um, yeah. And then it went through to sort of crustaceans, so little copepods and water fleas had found themselves into the tiny little tub just through pond plants and things like that. Um, and then went all the way through to uh, eventually, like I had nice sunbathing frogs that were using it as a little sort of dipping station to keep. Uh, nice and cool a few visiting nice. which was really cool a couple of visiting damselflies uh only a couple of water beetles um but you know it for, for such a small area it was it was absolutely honestly it was amazing and you know what it's like with these things one new animal or one unusual animal encounter gives you such a good sort of optimistic kick about the world you like you know for totally the- yeah i've just seen this amazing duck 
weed weevil beetle or whatever it was it would give it would give you such a lift so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this year I feel a bit low at the moment do you it's just so dark yeah it's been a long winter hasn't it yeah just craving it, you know it, itching to get outside and start discovering things again yeah definitely yeah but yeah going back to that like kind of optimism and like kind of fascination with what shows up I mean I think that's kind of part of the reason I became such a, a nature nerd I suppose in in my early days uh, as a little kid um begging for ages for my parents like can we put in a pond can I can I do this can I do that and I you know collect tadpoles and raise them in a tank or um my cousins had a pond a big pond up in the midlands in Ireland and we went and collected great diving beetles and they were like the ultimate you know insect pet at the time um for for a nature nerd like me but it started with pond life because you just don't realize what's below the surface. And once you start looking, I think you could just become, spend hours, you know, discovering all this amazing biodiversity, like below the surface. Um, it's really fascinating. We did a with Eating Wildlife Group a couple of weeks ago. We did a little um, kind of pop up with Trees for Cities. And uh, it's, dead, you know, dead of winter. What will we do? What can we bring the kids to show them really? Um, and we just stopped into a local nature reserve and took a couple of containers of pond water some pipettes and our field microscope. And the kids were literally at our table for the entire event, um, you know, pipetting out little tiny microscopic life and looking at it up close under the microscope, totally fascinated. And it really does engage them massively, you know, with, uh, with kind of nature around them, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, that sounds absolutely lovely. I think I, you know, I had a similar sort of experience as a kid, really. Um, I was really into sort of monsters and dinosaurs and just large foreboding, you know, just kind of like, I suppose, you know, aggressive looking animals, I suppose, you know, with sort of knives yeah. and sharp bits and angry faces. And I don't know, I don't know what where that came from, but it was a similar thing where, with ponds where you're looking at animals that are obviously much smaller than us. But up close, you know, you mentioned diving beetles. Actually, to look at a diving beetle, it's like a, you know, it's like an, it's like a, <laughs> You know, it's like a miniature monster. And it's yeah. up close when you see the number of adaptations for basically slaughtering and making, you know, nutritious slime from literally anything that gets too close. Yeah. It's just really exciting. But I don't know if that makes, I don't know, I sometimes worry like, oh, you know, what if that makes me a, a sort of, I don't know, a narcissistic, <laughs> I don't know. A bit, a a bit of a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, But I think that's p- progressed. You know, I really, I'm really into, well, People who say they're really into film often it, it sounds a bit sort of ooh, you know. But I, I I'm really into sort of sci-fi film, and I think that that thread is 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 always benefited by looking at pond invertebrates, just because they're mm. absolutely incredible up close. And the fact that with pond water, as you you were saying there, you've got an opportunity to keep things quite contained temporarily, keep things quite contained, and with a microscope have a really good look at them. And, you know, then just gently put them back in the pond and obviously all is good. Whereas to do that with, I don't know, I don't know, butterflies or, you know, sort of terrestrial invertebrates would feel a little bit um, more um, like, you know, you were keeping them quite enclosed. doesn't feel quite the same, but pond water is so accessible to people. It's just awesome, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, one of the things we did during the summer and always kind of captures um, kids' fascination, especially, is um, if you find a dragonfly nymph. And, you know, the, the sci-fi connection, I think the alien films were modelled after those, weren't they, with the projectile jaws and things? Yeah, yeah. We've got, I'm smiling because we had, uh, we've got two um, 
fairly small freshwater aquariums in the aquaria i know i don't know either way we've got two of them in our living room and um they are one's got some fish that the, the kids um wanted just some little zebra danios and yeah. the other's got uh just a sample of pond water so literally from our pond and um about over christmas we had a pond dip in the pond and there was a dragonfly yeah nymph in there so we put it temporarily we just thought a couple of months we'll put it in this um in this aquarium on its own uh with a few yeah. waterflies and stuff and just see see like what it does you know because like, they don't i don't think they feed much in winter um so it we had this basically every single thing we've watched on telly <laughs> over the last two months we've had this dragonfly <laughs> just quietly watching us and, right. <laughs> and and I didn't realize this, but I mean, I've I like you, I've done a lot of pond dipping. And with this nymph, you could put your finger in front of its face and basically it would instantly focus, you know, shift its head like a CCTV camera. And you could move your finger around on the side of the glass and it would just literally be following your finger around. And yeah, this thing was so alert. It was awesome. There's something a bit sinister about them almost, isn't there? Yeah, 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 and these, yeah, the these way, animals. The way they... Yeah, I mean these, uh, you know, these animals have evolved for what I don't know. Is it three hundred million years or so? Perhaps more for some. Yeah, of them. and they're you know some of the most their game. Definitely, and they're unchanged for millions of years, aren't they? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's some pretty cool fossils out there, isn't there, of uh, dragonfly nymphs? I seem to remember. Yeah, them. yeah. Um, so one of the things that I would say, Jules, about you, like having kind of looking at your social media over the years and things is um, a bit about a compliment vest now. But like you do have a, a pretty good skill of kind of turning kind of mundane or often kind of overlooked little creatures into something really fascinating. And you tell good stories around around that and engage people with it. Um, what started like your fascination in, you know, looking for those little things and and I guess you were probably quite like me, turning over rocks and finding little creepy crawlies and things. But where did it come from? Do you think? Yeah, that's a rich. You know, no one's ever asked me that question, and I think a lot of your listeners and you—it's—it's it's one of those that really penetrates right in, deep into your soul to understand why we can see such sort of amazing beauty and things that are so easy to overlook. I think for me. Um, <laughs> This is going to sound ridiculous, but Sorry, go with me. So I, um, I, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find the best way to wear this. Basically, uh, you know, if if uh, if there's a just talking about films again, actually, but if there's a movie soundtrack or a, like a, it's often like a kids' film, and I, uh, it's a really good, you know, it's really sort of deep kids' film, and. Um, the music's really good. I just basically just well up and I'm not the only one, you know, but I just, I find it really easy to get like super emotional. Um, mm. And my wife's often like, she, she used to be on a quite a spiritual journey and I'm, I guess mine's more of a scientific journey, but sometimes she, she would look at me and be like, you're having, you are having a spiritual experience right now. And it's <laughs> it kind of like this feeling of just like, wow, this is just beautiful. This is just incredible. And I can, still feel like that and I think lots of kids have that and I can still just get that about anything you know even if it's a, a dead obviously I'm not spending all time just crying and feeling dead emotional but I think yeah. if I'm in the mood for it if, particularly if I'm you know like you I do quite a lot of work with younger people if I'm in the mood for it I can just be like I mean anything is absolutely amazing particularly up close you know I, I yeah do, uh, a couple 
in fact, I'm doing some shows this year, like some sort of live shows to do with insects and, you know, because it's the summertime and often these things, they, they're in like festival tents or whatever. And you can basically be like, okay, has they not got like an insect on them right now? And, you know, and someone will no doubt go, oh, I've got a ladybird on my coat. Okay, bring it up. Let's have a look under the microscope. And actually, you know, every single animal up close or even when you consider its history or its adaptations or its unique way of life, every single animal has the potential to to lift your day you know to make you think mm. this is unbelievable so if i'm if that is the case on twitter uh you know and if there is an animal i've put on twitter and i've said something about it's it's uh it's i suppose it's just because at that very moment i'm like this is just insane we need to talk about this incredible thing you know yeah yeah, I think for for a long time, one of your taglines on Twitter was about "Let me tell you about slug mites," right? Mm, yeah, and that slug mites was um, was the the classic for me. It had all the makings of something you know incredible. That we've all seen slugs. Most of us choose not to get up close and personal with a slug, and I was one of those people, to be honest. And then you know, with I was actually looking for slugs. Um, mating for a book I was working on at the time I wanted to you know do a kind of like <laughs> gonzo journalism I suppose of slugs mating <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah um, uh, spotted I, I certainly didn't see slugs mating but just sitting there and waiting with my camera I was like oh my holy crap these things are just covered in little ectoparasites and I didn't know what they were and uh, slug people of course know all about these things but yeah these mites that are on in late summer they're on most slugs that you see and they're running yeah, into a hole, this pneumostone, or I, I can't quite remember what it's called, uh, the kind of lung hole, basically. And they run in and out and just live in the, the greatest life, I suppose, within and upon these like these everyday slugs, really. And so at the time, I was like, OK, we must I must find out how these animals, how they might have sex because the slugs weren't playing ball. Um, yeah. So uh, and then and then um, I just couldn't really find out much about them for, for an animal that you know all of us probably live within meters of these creatures uh i couldn't really find any good um scientific research published research about how these things have sex and mite sex is really diverse there's all sorts of different strategies they're a bit like mammals there's a kind of reproductive strategy for every species and there's hundreds of thousands of mite species out there and yet no one's really taken the time to search this thing out so at the time and i still feel like this now it was it was really inspiring to come up against the edge of human knowledge on an animal that you know all of us as i say have encountered or is very most people in britain and the world and i just i I find it i mean going back to the young people thing that's what's so cool is you can realistically realistically say to a young person wow you know what if you want to become a world slug my expert the door is an empty space somewhere that you can be um yeah so so that's 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 yeah, that's still out there. If anyone, if any of your listeners want to go grab the mantle, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And, and as you know, like invertebrates offer loads of opportunities like that for people to discover things that no human being in the history of the universe has ever discovered before. You know, that's awesome. That's the thing. There's just so much to learn all the time, isn't there? Like I've I've definitely seen slug mites growing up and and thought, oh yeah, look, there's all those little white creatures running in and out of their breathing hole, and you know they're they're covered in them, but never took the time to learn actually well, what they are or try and research them because there's always something else to see. I think that's the great thing with the kind of nature discovery, isn't it? You can always find 
your niche topic that really you know floats your boat and uh, and gets you excited, I suppose. But maybe finding the PhD funding for a, a, a slug mite sex topic could be a bit tricky. <laughs> And I guess that's, that's, I mean, that's really sad. I mean, that really... I know. I know that is the way the world has to be, uh, but it wouldn't it be great if we could fund sort of basic research and, uh, uh, you know, and all these specific things. Sean, I've got a question well, for you. Yeah. So at what point did you, because obviously you're like, you're kind of straddling two worlds here, the sort of vet side, but also the the, the sort of wildlife conservation and... and yeah. Sort of, side at what stage did you have to sort of sit down and make that decision about you know going at that stage in your life for the vet side and not the wildlife conservation side was that a hard decision it was that's a bloody great question um i'm not used to be, it being turned around on me on my own podcast but good question um i think if i was to be very very honest um going down the vet route is maybe a slight regret um, because I guess when I was growing up, I was just this, you know, you will relate. I was this like weird little dude that was not into like computer games or um, sport. I was into turning over rocks and logs and pond dipping and looking at birds and just absorbing all this information about biology and zoology, basically. And every adult in my life was like, wow, how do you know so much about nature? How do you know so much about animals? What are you going to be when you grow up with that that skill or that knowledge? And I, at you know, a very early age, was like, uh, well, what would I, you know, what's an animal job? I'll be a zookeeper or a vet. And the response, I guess, from most adults was, oh, it's very difficult to be a vet. And I think actually I'm maybe quite a stubborn person and quite a, an ambitious person. I was like, well, if everyone tells me I can't be a vet, I'm going to be a vet. <laughs> um, and kind of hung on to that kind of stubborn uh, drive, I suppose. I didn't know what a zoologist was. Um when I, you know, finished school and when I was talking to my career guidance teacher, she was like, yeah, you, you could try out for veterinary, but it's very tricky to get into and maybe you should just do science. And there was no, um, she didn't have much knowledge in kind of anything else. And certainly a wildlife conservation career path or education path wasn't, wasn't kind of discussed with me and, and wasn't very easy to find. So I did animal science first, which is where I have kind of a lot of my formal training in, in kind of zoological um, topics. And then I still decided after that that I wanted to pursue veterinary as a graduate and just kind of stuck with it, got in, did it, and then kind of realized, you know what, I love animals. I love the relationships we have with them and, you know, what they do for people. And some aspects of pet ownership, I think, are really, really great and what they add to our lives. But some of some aspects of pet ownership I got a little bit fed up with, if I'm honest, um, as a clinical vet. Um, obviously very passionate about animal welfare and some of, the, some of the ways we keep animals, especially exotic animals, which I was quite interested in, you know, reptiles and birds and things, um, just really started to grind on me quite a lot. And I just realized, you know what, like the veterinary side is something that I've pursued and I've sacrificed a lot to get into. But my true passion really is in, in wildlife conservation and about four years ago, I took a step back away from clinical veterinary life and um, to some other kind of industry uh, vet work with a nutrition company. And it gave me the time actually to get back to what I was really passionate about, which was wildlife. Um, and I just took more of my own time to to kind of go out and um, pick up a camera actually for the first time was kind of my, um, my kind of motivation at first to get back to nature. And then I set up Ealing Wildlife Group and it's just grown into, you know, a, a, an actual conservation organization now that's run by volunteers 
um, and I headed up. So um, kind of, yeah, re- rediscovered it. There was a period of time there where I just didn't have time to do much with nature and wildlife. But um, now I would see it as my kind of main passion and veterinary is kind of what pays the bills and the mortgage. Hmm. Yeah, you know? that's cool. I mean, like this is this is I had a, a sort of similar encounter with the careers um, advisor at school. And I mean, it's, it must be a hard job, but I'm not I'm not I don't think I've met anyone really who's been like my careers advisor sorted me right out, really helped me sort of yeah. you know, work out a correct path. And I know it is a hard job and kids are hard to work with. But yeah, I think I, I would have loved to hear a careers advisor, a careers advisor say, um Say something along the lines of, "Yeah, do that." But if it doesn't work out, you know, five years later or ten years later, you can you can change. You know, you can move. You can yeah, it's your job that you like best, and then you know, choose a job that that better ticks those boxes. Because I think there is a kind of, especially I guess for you having invested, what is it for for veterinary? Is it that's like five years or is it seven? So I did five years, yeah, in Dublin. Um, but I did, you know, three three years of a degree before that, so um, eight years of university, which is crazy. And I guess, yeah, the pressure is on then if you've put that that amount of time in to think, okay, I, I must pursue this. But yeah, good. Well, that was it, even even during it, you know, like if I was having doubts, because I, I um, set up my own garden design business, and, and most of the gardens I did were, you know, very much a wildlife focus, just to pay my way through uh, through vet school in terms of, you know, keeping myself fed and. Uh, an old booze budget as well while a student um and you know i i kind of i did i got um onto a tv show in ireland for amateur garden designers and was getting quite a bit of work and kind of thinking actually should i go down this route rather than veterinary but after all that in time and investment you know i wasn't going to jump ship in year three of vet school you know after doing all that time so i i stuck it out um it's a very difficult career it's a very difficult difficult job a lot of vets, unfortunately, are, you know, they are jumping ship six or seven years out of out of um, uni and um, kind of looking at alternatives and things because it's quite a strain um, the way the way it works at the moment, being a clin- full time clinical vet, at least. Well, yeah. the, the you know, the, the veterinary world's loss is the wildlife conservation world's massive gain, Sean. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, one of the things that struck me down when we were talking about slug mites, and um, I brought up the, the PhD funding issue, which is very sad, um, but is a reality, unfortunately, was there, there was quite a bit of um, media attention. Maybe it was a couple of years ago now, and you'll remember because you've actually done a bit of work on this topic. Um, duck vaginas. Wasn't there someone who was doing a PhD on duck vaginas and she got slated on online for like, why are we funding this stupid scientific research that means nothing? Um, I'm yeah. sure you waited in on. I'm sure you waited in on that topic, did you? No, good. That was excellent sort of uh, topical knowledge. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was about. Um, yeah, it was, wasn't it? And it was one of the. Um, was it Gizmodo or one of them? So yeah, sorry, the professor. Professor. Br- uh, Br- sorry, I'll start that again. Professor Patricia. I've got to say that again, Professor Patricia <laughs> Brennan. Um, yeah. She was, uh, yeah, so has been involved in genitalia research for absolutely, you know, years and years and years. And um, part of her work was being funded by, uh, you know, an American uh, grant foundation, which was giving money to basic research. Um, yeah. As you say, linking to the slug mites thing. And uh, I think quite regularly, especially during election time, 
Um, you know, the newspapers start picking through what the, this foundation is funding, what the taxpayers are funding. And obviously hit upon, you know, they always hit upon like a handful of weird studies. And uh, this one, because it is ridiculous, it sounds ridiculous, you know, studying duck genitalia was, you know, lamp- lampooned really for for being ridiculous. And actually, I think I can't. Can you remember how much money it was? I think it was I think it was. Not much. I think it was actually about thirty thousand, which sounds. I mean, yeah. Some people will balk at that, but actually, you know, for, well, it was for, for several people, years' research, wasn't it? And, mm, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Um, she obviously, because Patricia's amazing, did a really, really good uh, repost about about that and about why basic research funding is so important. And you know, one of the links that her research is still helping with potentially is. Um, you know, human fertility and understanding the evolution of our own genitalia so we can hopefully in future, um, you know, stand a better chance of, you know, improving our reproductive options, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah, she's great. In fact, I think it was that that brought, um, that that made me pick up the phone. And I'm actually quite... uh, sort of a bit nervous, even though I've got quite a, you know, I'm I'm a talker, no doubt about it. I'm I'm actually quite nervous sometimes, you know, and I was, I remember being really nervous ringing her up and, uh, because she said she she was like, you know, much rather work over the the phone than email. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to speak to this amazing, you know, guru basically. And she was absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, we we carried on because we, we, do you know about this duck vagina VR experience, virtual reality experience? Did you ever hear about that? (laughs) Um, I heard about it, but I didn't look at it. But I did um, very much enjoy the chapter on it in your book, Sex on Earth, uh, which I was going to come oh, to. Cool. You've, you've written a few books recently. You've written one on ponds, haven't you? And one on um, bones and dinosaurs and things. Yeah, but, um, it looked like I was really busy. Um, but it was because a couple of years ago, lifting a bag of fossils, I had um, <laughs> I had a double hernia, like a gr- double growing oh. hernia. It was like beautifully, hilariously um, grotesque. It was like in Friends, you know, when Joey has a hernia, yeah. crazy like that. But anyway, you don't need to know the details. But that put me off my feet for quite a while, to be honest. And it meant that I had to rejig um, a lot of the work that I was doing to really focus solely. Um, on writing rather than standing up and running around and doing talks and stuff so it's quite an extreme way Jules to uh to make yourself right (laughs) but it worked and anyway because of that because I had to invest a lot of time in a you know in a six-month period uh that led to a lot of books being released at once it looked like I was like oh my god this guy is just releasing too many books I was thinking you're like a productivity powerhouse (laughs) yeah Yeah. but it was all an illusion because of my grotesque uh lower abdomen (laughs) <laughs> injury oh no <laughs> yeah not a good visual <laughs> but yeah, um but patricia and her research listen today have you heard about the harbour dolphin research no so uh one of the things your listeners most people know your listeners will definitely know all about duck genitalia and they've probably seen it for themselves but you know they have some of them of- some of them won't so we're going to come back to that story for sure okay so the the famously um nearly all Ducks have like a sort of spiraling penis shape. The males have a spiraling um, uh, penis that can sort of fire out um, of their bodies very quickly. Looks a bit like a, a party balloon or something like that. And there is some yes, species that this is very long indeed, you know, longer than the actual duck itself, including the Muscovy duck. Yeah, go on. Um, yeah, it's like a, a kind of a propulsive, explosive penis, right? Yeah, explosive penis, yeah. 
Um, and um, unusual for birds because most birds don't have one. Mm. But this is the cool thing about ponds, you see, because yeah. ponds are kind of a limited resource, you know, ponds and lakes and a lot of those smaller fresh waters. So if you want to have access to a female, you know, you've you've got to, by going to the pond, you have to go to a kind of mating arena. So, yeah. you know, that's what's so cool about this is you've got these, a bit like with frogs as well, you know, their adaptations, I, I often feel like the, the battles are much, are much more um, intense because you're fighting over this vital limited resource for you know the survival of your little babies um so yeah lots of chat about that over the years and even victorians are very interested in male reproductive anatomy but you know patricia brennan comes along and starts thinking well what's what's going on with the female anatomy you know if the male's anatomy looks like this crazy corkscrew what what on earth must be going on inside her and to mm. her amazement, she did the study as uh, by basically asking a glass blower <laughs> to make some models of um, uh, female duck reproductive anatomy, and basically found that the female's vagina is not corkscrewing in the same direction as the male's penis; it's corkscrewing in the opposite direction. So it's almost like an anti-corkscrew. And you know, traditional ideas of uh, animal mating evolution you would expect you know the female to have adapted for a corkscrew vagina to fit the corkscrew penis um yeah. but actually it was it was the opposite so she would have these these special glass models and was firing uh male duck penises into these glass models and worked out that actually by having an anti-corkscrew the female duck could effectively um uh, push out I suppose or close off um, an approaching male so she could make a choice about whether he was you know the correct or the desirable male and if it you know if this male was not desirable she can kind of coil up her vagina and uh, and block it like prevent him getting in basically yeah yeah, yeah. and she uses <laughs> and then later, yeah exactly and then later studies, you know, they they looked at um, not by her, but by, you know, the people with whom she was working. Um, you know, they, they looked at the yellowness of, of beaks, for instance, in in uh, um, in a few different species, including our own duck species. Um, and uh, yeah, the yellower your, your beak, the, the healthier you are, the, the fewer STDs you have. So the reason right. that females don't necessarily want to, you know, open up, I suppose, is because, you know, if, if a, a, a male duck is, is really, really good at protruding his penis into lots of different ducks, then he's going to have a lot of STDs and he's not someone you want to mate with. So in other words, okay. the, the very presence of disease was influencing um, the, the, the shape of the female duck's genitalia. Now, you know, some people in America or in Britain may well think that is ridiculous research. Who cares about that? But actually, you know, this this isn't just ducks. We now, well, Patricia's team have looked at a few different animals. One of which is is dolphins, and again, it's a very competitive mating arena, I guess, for 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 dolphins. And today, this is like fresh off the presses. Um, right. The, the harbour dolphin has is it's long been noticed that males only mate from the left hand side of the body, <laughs> so no one's, as far as I'm aware, no one's ever seen a male on the right you know with his penis out basically mating with a with with a with a female harbor dolphin and this is because her reproductive anatomy also spirals round to the right so again it's a classic corkscrew shape and so males can basically only get themselves in there by 
hooking rounds kind of from the left. Is this? Is it, left, I feel it? like is this contentious? Is this? I don't know what the standard for your podcast is. Is this? Is this all absolutely brilliant? We can no, we can get smudgier and smudgier. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is why I, I invited mean, you. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, someone called me a uh, marvelous pervert on Twitter. Today. A, mar- a wonderful like, pervert. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. The weird thing is, I don't. I don't. I just. I kind of. You, you know, you said you. You were when people. You, you just said when when you wanted to be a vet and people were saying, you know, it's expensive. It's a lot of work. You were like, I'm going to show them. I kind of get that feeling when people when people say, you know, about this being. I know you didn't mean this, but when people say, oh, that's a bit smutty or whatever, I'm like, come on, we should be talking about this all the time. We're so, you know, it's natural you know, behavior, right? Yeah, it's totally. And in a weird sort of way, the more I, I kind of, I don't know, I, the more we talk about it. It's only weird if you make it weird. Do you know what I mean? So it's totally, like if yeah. you have a bit of a, a British hang-up or whatever about about sex, yeah. then that's kind of not. Mm, I don't know. It's not my problem. And but. I think you're in you're in a position now, Jules, where like you know you've got a reputation on this, so you need to up the ante all the time. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I don't think you can go hot. To be honest, I've never met like a. I've never been involved in a more awesome bit of research than 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 that than the duck genitalia thing, uh, the dolphin duck thing. but you never yeah. know you never know what what's happening this is well, what happens um, the i'm this I'm, yeah go on sorry go on. no you go on go on this is what happens when you are the you know the the offspring of a sex therapist so my mum was a sex therapist ah uh-huh, right that explains a lot yeah yeah anyway <laughs> carry on um no your book sex on earth i'm gonna i'm gonna make an admission now which is terrible but i've read sex on earth but not death on earth yeah that is on my on my long list of books to read but um sex on earth i found really fascinating and i've always talked about it as well it's like it's a way of engaging people sometimes because i think people have um hang-ups for sure but they also have like you know quite a curiosity about the sex lives of others whether it's people or animals and actually, like sometimes telling a story that surprises people or people find a little bit risque can be a good way of getting them interested in nature. Just even again, going back to kind of the mundane or overlooked species that you you, you find and they don't really inspire any kind of um, interest. I always tell the story of the Dunnock, um, oh, yeah. you know, and I've, I've put it on my um, Twitter and Instagram more recently a few times where I photographed a Dunnock and, and said, I'm about to slut shame a sparrow now. Um, and I tell the story of how the Dunnock chooses a mate or mates and uh, and her kind of promiscuous or their promiscuous sex lives, I suppose. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a good way. I don't know if you fe- you featured a Dunnock. Remind in me, remind me. Like, no, I didn't. I remember learning about it yeah. at uni, but like, remind me what. Yeah. Come on, tell us everything. So the Dunnock is a little brown, like streaky, unobtrusive little bird that kind of skulks around in the bottom of your hedge in your garden. It's sometimes called a hedge sparrow. And you can like just totally overlook it and think it's just a, an LBJ, a little brown job, um, you know, nothing really going on for it. But their sex lives are quite fascinating because um, a female and male will pair up in the spring, um, but the female will keep an eye on all of the single or taken males on the periphery of her territory as well. And she will actually go around um, before she starts laying eggs or while she's laying eggs and she will mate quickly with the kind of um, the peripheral males. Um, but her male that she's bonded to and that she's built a nest with will know what she's up to and kind of keep an eye on her. And if she comes back and he suspects that she's been uh, unfaithful, he will ask her to lift her tail and she'll do a little kind of a fluttering little movement and he'll peck her cloaca until she ejects his competitor's sperm. 
and only then he will mate with her. So he's actually saying, you know, I know you've uh, you've been unfaithful. Um, you know, you're going to have to um, show me what's inside you, basically. And if there's a competitor's sperm in there, you're going to have to drop it um, before I will mate with you again. So it's kind of like seen as, you know, oh, promiscuous promiscuity in the bird world. But actually, she's kind of hedging her bets that if her mate gets eaten um, or predated, you know, by the local sparrowhawk, um, maybe one of the single males that thinks he's also fathered her young will come in and help her raise those those offspring. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. Isn't that? Yeah, it's amazing that and that's I've, happening right now. You know, like in every single neighbourhood in you know in Britain, that there are these encounters and these little weird relationships. Yeah, I love that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen it once, you know, I've seen um, that little kind of um, kind of gesture he does with her and she kind of like lifts her tail and, and he inspects her. Um, it's quite, uh, quite an eye opener <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you did, when you wrote Sex on Earth, um, you weren't incapa- incapacitated by a hernia. So you actually went out looking for stories, didn't you? And you went out researching things. Yeah, that's uh, the, I, I miss that aspect of, of, you know, that kind of writing um, experience. And I think I've, I think I'm, hmm, what is it? Eight, eight books in. Um, and Sex and Earth and Death and Earth were the only ones I got to sort of flex those muscles of, of being able to choose and explore. And rather than just kind of going, okay, here's animals, here's how they work. Here's a list of, you know, species. And this is why they're so great. With those, it was really fun to, um, yeah, just, just basically a bit like it was like it was like designing your own TV show without having to deal with anyone else but you. So it was a yeah. it was really lovely, actually. It was really nice experience, and I came out of both of those um, experiences just thinking, you know, this sounds so trite, but you know, it's, it's actually a real privilege to be given the space, you know, by a publisher to just say, yeah let's go for it. You know, we trust you just go off and find some interesting things. So I think yeah. the reason, the reason that I felt they, they worked as books for me um, was, you know, it was, it was because I was just chasing my interest, you know? So, so yeah. I was lucky with those and hopefully in future I will um, at some point get back to doing books like that where, yeah, you yeah. can see where the story uh, takes you. Yeah. It was wonderful actually. Definitely. If any listeners haven't uh, haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And uh, definitely, Death on Earth is on my list. But what was um what were some of the more kind of surprising discoveries you made? Because obviously, you went out to tell certain stories about things you knew about. But what were some of the things that surprised you on that kind of journey? Yeah, that's a good question. I was that so if I think about it this way like I'm not proud of this but often with a with a book like that you've done lots of research and stuff and you've visited lots of places there is an element of a bit like with you with you and your exams and stuff like that you you, there's a bit of a mini flush that goes on in my head anyway after a book like that and you, you feel that a lot of that information sort of move out of your head as you move on to other projects so flush yeah. is probably putting a bit bit too hard. But anyway, so there was a there was a bit of a flushing going on after those books. So I think when I look back on them, I think the what I recount are um memories of working with other scientists, working with people. Um yeah. so you know, for the for the sex one, it was definitely um caddis flies. So, you know, getting to dissect um, you know, caddis fly genitalia and like there's specialist skills involved with carefully using tools to pick apart these absolutely minuscule bits of anatomy. That was just a really cool, that was really good. And the character all yeah. these scientists bring with them their own little strange 
you know, uh, behaviors <laughs> and uh, quirks. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the beauties of, of, of this kind of work, I suppose. Um, horse sex, I mean, like, was pretty cool. You in your vet, oh, yeah. did you get? Did you get? Was that an aspect of your work as a vet? Yeah, absolutely. So I did. I forgot about that chapter, but now you, I'm remembering it. Weren't your kids there or something? And you were like trying to shield them from what was about to happen or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or your was, wife uh, was it? I can't remember. No, it was. It was our. It was our kid. <laughs> Luckily, um, yeah. She. She. We've never talked about it again. So hopefully, that's one day she'll read it. But I hope she does. Anyway. Um. So. Uh. Yeah. That was. I mean, that was Newmarket, and that was. Um. You know, for the for the racing industry, and I can't remember the horses involved, but this was a. You know, it was a seven-time winning horse, and there was people from. Dubai and Australia and like you know they're in this viewing chamber watching um you know this famous stallion uh you know basically having sex with their um, mares and their mayor yes yeah. it was just I mean it was that that's what you want is like uh, I my I'm not very world wise you know I haven't traveled much <laughs> and like so to throw me into situations like that it was like it was just perfect really um so yeah that was really nice and uh rotifers these little you know as you know these little things that live in fresh waters and hang, hang on jules nice. hang on you've you've just glossed over the whole horse sex thing as that was very nice <laughs> <laughs> i was reading that yeah. chapter and i was like, the way you described it and your reaction to it was very to me it was like yeah you know, we we were involved with that as vet students. You know, I did a little bit of equine work when I came out, but not much reproductive. But that was kind of like just so normal. But actually, the way you described it, and it was like being in someone's shoes who'd seen that for the first time, and kind of how ludicrous it was, and everyone standing around watching this, uh, you know, mare get bred. Um, yeah, to say, yeah, that was very nice. <laughs> let's let's move on. <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, read the book, guys. It's brilliant. <laughs> Anyway, Rosemary. Well, I was going to say about. I was literally thinking about that today. Um, the the thing that I don't know what what whether this is a narrative that plays out in wildlife uh, documentaries or in stuff you know children's films like you know where horses are involved, Black Beauty and stuff. Like that. I don't know what I'm about to say could sound weird, but just again, you're gonna to have to go with me here. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to see like the big stallion come in and the mega bucks one and, and uh, you know, showing his powers and his skills and his strength and the female to be a little bit nervous and scared. But what was kind of um, memorable about it was that they were both just really up for sex. It wasn't, there wasn't, yeah. there was like nerves and there was stuff like that. And But I kind of, I was, it was in a weird sort of way. It was like, oh yeah, actually, I think that's what led it later in the book when I focus much more on female anatomy. It's partly because actually the narrative is often this is a male story and this is the stallion yeah. and you know he's the 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 biggest the alpha male etc. Um, and actually it was it was I mean yeah I mean she was like well she, up for it I mean as well as him it was. was like it was like a two way thing and it was like oh that's really nice. <laughs> so in a funny you, you remember way, being told. Like, do you remember being told about clitoral winking? Do you know, isn't, isn't that funny? I was scared of saying that, Sean, on your podcast. <laughs> but I, don't, no. I didn't mention that I'm in the book. Vet. Because, I'm a vet. Well, this is it. And that was the most shocking thing. And they took that out of the book because they said, the Americans aren't going to like this, Jules. But this thing, I, I didn't call it clitoral winking, but all I know is it was kissing. So I was like, that, the what I thought was the vagina, but, you know, it was actually like, 
sort of you know really like sticking out and it was like very eager and like as i say it was sort of flashing (laughs) yeah flashing (laughs) so again it was like oh that's actually really interesting you know this this aspect that we don't think of often you know um yeah yeah, it was really cool it was lovely it was a kind of true romance it was great yeah apart from there was like you know 10 nameless men who were just hanging around and like grabbing bits and putting them in bits and there was a lot of yeah. there was quite a lot of humans around but i guess that is in the business you know you, you're always going to have to have safety uh, first you know, safety first safety you know. first yeah we can, can't damage his <laughs> this is the other thing of course you're taking me back there this was yeah the other thing what was the so they're bringing a like a dummy male the, just to check if yeah. the female's okay so what the, was that is that a teaser the teaser stallion. The teaser, that's the one. <laughs> so, yeah, the teaser. I thought, and this poor teaser was being used like, you know, like 10 times a day. And it was a very confused look on his face every time. But, yeah, it was, it was really, yeah, the whole thing is, it, you know, very, very interesting. And, again, that comes yeah. back to the basic research thing is, you know, you kind of have to, we have to know these animals and we have to know how they tick, I guess, to make sure yeah, that we're yeah. not, you know, give, giving them a crap life. I know, I know. A pretty crap life for the old teaser. Definition of blue balls, yeah. I think, right? <laughs> anyway, we must move on to rotifers. <laughs> what were you going to say about rotifers? Um, well, uh, there was certainly no, what was it, winking clitorises? Clitoral winking. That. No. <laughs> um, no, just that, you know, these, these everyday organisms that are just, you know, drying up and floating around in, in the wind, really, you know, are have taught us so much about um you know the function of sex the role of sex on this planet um mm-hmm. you know for the last 1200 um thousand sorry 1200 million years you know sex has been a big deal on this planet and these everyday yeah. organisms are teaching us exactly kind of why that is so you know those uh, those um those stories of everyday things like horses or rotifers and how they can teach us incredible things about the universe. That I love stuff like that. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, what about death on earth? As I said, uh, I, I haven't uh, read it yet. Um, I have seen you, I think, talk about it on a YouTube video some time ago. And the thing that stuck in my mind was the, the take home message um, from your learnings on it was once we're about 30, we're fucked. <laughs> things go downhill is that right <laughs> yeah it's i think it's what is it it's 34 your chances okay. of death double every six years now that's one of them i'd have to check because i haven't i haven't um thought about that statistic for a while or it might be every okay. eight years so when you hit 34 every eight years your chance of doubling dies so you know in other words anyone who makes it you know to a healthy old age is is you know it's done very well um okay i'm in that category people, now yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> celebrate that. It's my fortieth this year, and I'm like, yeah, oh, that's all right. I made it, so let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. Every year's a bonus now, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I think it's similar. It's a kind of um, in a different sort of way. It's a similar journey as with sex. You know, the, death is something we don't naturally talk about as a society. Uh, we don't mm. like to think about it. So I guess death on earth was was kind of. Uh, it was kind of the yin to the yang, if you like, of, of sex on earth. You know, it was kind of yeah. picking a topic, a big, big, big topic, and seeing whether animals and animal science can help us explore that to- topic and understand ourselves a bit better. Yeah, That was good. I and should you... have put that on the bloody blurb, what I just said. But there yeah, that's go. essentially what I was going for. 
Um, I was going to say there when you said we don't really talk about it, we don't really think about it, except if you're a vet, because we think about death all the time and we do euthanasia, um, you know, for welfare grounds. And I think, um, yeah, just have a much kind of, dare I say, blowing the trumpet of, of my entire profession, but like have just a much healthier relationship with death. Um, and it's something that I find quite fascinating as well. You know, if, you, if you're interested in nature, you, you tend to be quite interested in, you know, dead things and how things die and how, how the circle of life kind of, um, you know, operates and things. But um, yeah, yeah, I think Do you remember it, it kind of... Within your, go on. I was going to say within your vet career and within your, you know, your, you know, academic kind of learning, was there a moment you like, oh my God, we're all going to die? Or is it just a gradual thing? As you say, you're working in an industry where you will naturally see lots of, you know, dead bodies. Do you, you know, was, was that a slow process or was there one event that suddenly made you think, holy crap? No, I think I was so um, kind of immersed in life and death, like as a, as a kid, looking at things and, you know, um, watching nature programs. And, and if I found something dead, I, w- I would pick it up and I would sometimes this sounds weird, but I would sometimes, you know, hack bits off it and dry it and, you know, wings and claws and skulls and things in a collection in my garage as a child, which sounds really morbid and, and maybe I was a bit, bit of a creep, but just, you know, I was quite interested in it. And so when I did dissections in my animal science degree about anatomy and physiology, I was always the one getting stuck in and doing the dissection. Well, maybe some people were a bit queasy in the corner. Um, and by the time it got to vet training, I think the thing that fascinated me or that I found really um, interesting and a bit of a privilege, which sounds weird, is actually bringing people on that journey of accepting death in their companion and um, telling them what's going to happen practically and biologically, but also, you know, kind of coaching them through when's the right time to make the decision or the fact that it is the right decision at that time. So I think just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was never there was never a moment where I was like, oh my god, I'm faced with my own mortality. I was always quite a realist. Um yeah. in terms yeah. of we live, you know, we live and we die, and death is a totally natural part of it. And, you know, not afraid to say growing up in Catholic Ireland where religion was a bit of a, you know, a feature, especially in the early years. Um later, you know, my family kind of came away from that and were like, you know, you don't need to go to church when you're fifteen, make your own decision and stuff. But um early on I was just always a, a doubter that like you know death was anything but a really natural part end of life and then you became nutrients again and then you were had fulfilled your purpose on earth you know that's that's exactly how I, how I feel really is is you know like you I was brought up um you know in quite a religious school and religious background my dad was sorry my granddad was a vicar and you know we were it was you know we were a church family I guess and yes. I, I, a tiny bit of me feels not resentful exactly, but a tiny bit of me feels it was a missed opportunity to sort of hide behind the whole like, oh, it's OK. You know, it's just sleeping or don't worry, that's OK. That's that one's going off to heaven. That one's not because it's not human. But these ones that I know they look like apes, but they're definitely not apes. They're going up to heaven. And I kind of feel like actually the story of nature and exactly as you say, the fact that it's just kind of a, a cycling of nutrients is is more of a beautiful and uh, obviously a realistic story you know I think it's one that we should celebrate exactly like you say really so no that's absolutely fantastic does that can I ask this this is something you probably won't want to put in the podcast but like you know to, when it comes to euthanasia does that does your perspective having worked with and, and dealt with that with animals for so long 
you know, do you think this is something that human society, Western cultures will get used to a bit more? Absolutely. Yeah. Can, and I can go in the podcast. I mean, I'm quite vocal about it. I think um, as a vet, you, you can't kind of often can't get your head around the fact that we do this very humane and very dignified thing for animals to prevent their suffering at the end of their life. But why do we not have some kind of system in place to do that for people too? You know, yeah. I've seen I've seen people die in, in my life die. You know, kind of um, good deaths and bad deaths, and it's just I think it's it's so inhumane. And obviously, you know, if you're trying to legislate for that, there's room for um, you know bad things to happen, or for um, you know people's motives not to be you know wholly on the side of the person dying, or you know where there's life, there's hope, there's that kind of element as well. And sometimes you battle with that with pet owners, you know, kind of really drawing out the the end of their pet's life for their own reasons. And I understand why sometimes, but it can be very frustrating to deal with. But yeah, to summarize, I think um I think it's only a matter of time before we need to address this. Um, you know, we're we're keeping people alive for longer and longer and longer. And it's almost like there's this societal um you know blindfold that like we don't want to face up to the fact that we are all going to die. And wouldn't it be better that we have a plan in place and wouldn't it be better that we have we treat our dying with dignity and, and allow them to make their decision or to kind of control that that process at the right time yeah. i'm all for it yeah, yeah i think it's yeah. crazy not to I, yeah. I kind of hope that we'll look back on this as, as you say it's kind of it feels obvious actually but you know hopefully we'll look back on this as a stage where you know people will say oh my god are people just used to let people suffer you know it was almost legally the 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 way the way that everyone dealt with death was to just suffer as long as possible and yeah 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 yeah. i think we will look back on it yeah sean i've got five minutes left yeah no worries i was literally literally i'm worried now because you you've got the incredibly hard job of lifting us back up No worries. I was literally just going to say we've gone, we've gone very maudlin now, and I just uh, four minutes left on my time. Keep it to an hour. So, um, I was going to say on on that note before we go down a dark path. Um, you do a phenomenal job on um your social media. I love um chatting to you on there, and just uh, when I get a chance, um, have a look at your feed and things. So, if anyone um doesn't currently follow Jules, what's your handle on Twitter and and Instagram? So it's Jules L Howard. And uh, that's Twitter, and yeah. Instagram is Jules Howard underscore Zoology. I used to have Jules Howard on Twitter without the L, and then I yeah. I just messed about with my Twitter. I said like, I'll just change it, and then what, literally a day later I went back and someone had taken Jules Howard. She's awesome. She's an Ipswich Town fan, and she gets sent pictures of um, animal genitalia all the time. <laughs> And Brilliant. every time she says, you mean Jules L. Howard. Uh, so, yes, yeah, shout out to Jules Howard in Ipswich. Uh, Hilarious. So, yeah, that's, Hilarious. that's me. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, one final question that I'm asking all kind of uh, conservationists and, and naturalists and things. Um, we're obviously in a time where, you know, uh, the, the world is in crisis and we're in troubling times with the climate and everything like that. But do you think we're in a hopeful time as well, um, you know, in terms of the amount of interest there is in the natural world and the kind of, mobilization of people to do something now i think yes i think about that a lot i think loads of us do we all do don't we at the moment eco anxiety right yeah and twitter is twitter changed so much hasn't it and you know in in, it was once just a selection of kind of geeks just sharing nature facts chatting away yeah has become something 
uh, really big and empowered and powerful and urgent. And that's really great. I think if we haven't got hope, we are desperately, desperately weakened um, when it comes to the things that we're that we're fighting for. So uh, I think I think hope's the most important one. So we need to, I guess, like, like you do on your Twitter feed as well. We talk about the success stories. Talk talk about the reason that we like wildlife. Talk about the reason we want to save wildlife. Why it matters to us as human beings is really really yeah. important. Because I think if we if we're just constantly just um people on the news who are holding banners and screaming then we're not really it's not really working for people and a lot of people get turned off by that don't they and it becomes a really polarized thing so i totally yeah i think there has to be all these different figures doing everything that they love for the animals and and plants that they adore um and yeah i I think but as i say you can hear the hesitation in my voice because i'm i'm not totally sure and I, i that we're all I don't know I just worry that that yeah. you know I worry all the time about my own actions and are they enough and and sometimes you know for instance on Twitter this is a bit of a personal thing really but I, I feel like sometimes my sort of uh vapid you know <laughs> duck genitalia crap is is missing the point somehow but I kind of feel like we all have to be talking about the things that we love and and you know and and that's what hopefully inspires others to do a bit of protecting and to, yeah. to fight to fight this kind of unified battle yeah. but this is a time isn't it but you know they said climate was it climate change is the third biggest issue now um they said in the last week yeah and one of them came up with the, 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 the third biggest election issue that is a long way away from where we were 10 years 10 ago, years you know, ago yeah yeah so this is this is in, in that respect, this is a battle that we we seem to be, you know, making positive steps about. So totally, yeah, I I think we're going in the right direction. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so to to end on a on a positive note, then because that wasn't so positive, but a bit more than euthanasia, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> we met on Twitter. Great discussions going on there. As you said back in the day, it was a lot of uh, nature nerds rambling on and chatting to each other about stuff, and it's become something different. But who are the top three kind of Twitter accounts that you get a lot of enjoyment from and a lot of hope from and, and um, would encourage people to follow? That is a great question. Really good. Um, it changes a lot, but the, the the people who I come back to again and again, I just think are wonderful. So you've obviously got Erica McAllister at the Natural History Museum. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, we often have. Say her. And I don't want to, I don't want to like exaggerate and bump up. Uh, so I want to choose someone. So Patricia Brennan is called. Yeah. Uh, she's worth. She's definitely worth looking at. And I think her her Twitter handle. I've not got any access to the internet here, but don't I think, worry. Um, if you if you type like her name in, matters or something like that. I know Patricia Brennan is always absolutely brilliant. Uh, Danny Rabbiati is just a full of um, yeah. uh, great facts. She's the person that did obviously. Well, she co-wrote. Um, uh, what is it? Why animals fart or something like that? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Always great value. Obviously, a very committed sort of um, uh, conservationist with experience of, of you know animals other than those that live in this country. So there's yeah. there's just three, but you know there are so many. In fact, follow my Twitter feed, and you know I, I, there's quite a few that I like to um, give shout outs to, really, because without them, you know, people like me <laughs> would have nothing to write about, to be honest. So I'm always massively grateful to them for their awesome academic skills. Brilliant. That is a great way to end. Well, look, Jules, I'm really privileged and I'm very thankful for you to coming on and having a chat with me tonight. Um, yeah, sure. and Lovely to speak to you. Got a little, got a little uh, 
opportunity maybe up my sleeve with a little wildlife festival I'm getting organized uh, at the moment. I might have a chat with you and see if you'd come in and do a little talk for us maybe. Um, but awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll drop you a line on that. And um, for everyone listening, um, it's been great. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the episode tonight. Um, if you would like to rate us and subscribe us on whatever your podcast uh, hosting um, platform is of choice. And um, thanks again to Jules. And if anyone would like to um, donate a little, uh, a little to our fund of producing the podcast, you can do so on Patreon. I will um, put the link in the description. So Jules, once again, thanks so much for your time. Um, it's been great chatting in person finally after all these years. Love it. All right. Thanks ever so much, Sean. Catch up with you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast with myself, Sean McCormick, produced and edited by Thomas Dinas. If you're enjoying the series so far, I would really appreciate it if you consider donating to our Patreon link below. That will really help us out with producing the podcast and covering the costs involved. See you next episode. Thank you.